All right, it is time for April birthday shoutouts, and I purposely saved them for this episode because this episode releases in the main feed on April 18th, which happens to be my birthday. So for all my fellow April Aries babies, I say Aries as though I'm a horoscope person. I actually don't know what that means, but we are all in the same boat for whatever that does mean. So I want to say happy birthday to Allie, Annie, Bill, Kara, Carol, Chelsea, Denise, Eileen, Elizabeth, Jessica M, Jessica O, Cody, Kristen, Lark, Laura, Leslie, Lisa Marie, Maria, Melanie, Nikki, Quinn, Sarah, Susie, Tamara, Tiffany, and Zoe. Happy birthday, everyone. Go have some cake. Enjoy your day, your month whatever you celebrate, and have a great birthday. In 2009, a young woman went out to celebrate Mardi Gras with her friends. When she didn't return home, everyone was worried. But when the suspects pointed fingers at each other, learning what happened would be difficult. But even more difficult was the question of why. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Today's case was suggested by Jessica, so thank you for sending it in. I then had my Patreon supporters choose cases off of a list and this is one of the ones they picked. As an added perk on Patreon, I have added occasional live streams where we discuss cases that I've covered and plan some episodes. So thank you to my patrons for also helping me narrow down my very long list. And as way of another announcement, I will be bringing public live streams back to my YouTube channel. Those of you who watch on Facebook will still be able to see it there but I do recommend going out to the Crime Lines YouTube channel and subscribing there. The reason I stopped doing them and stopped doing video content was that I wanted to put more effort into the podcast. And to bring back the live streams, I will be having rotating guest hosts who will also be bringing cases to us that you've not heard before. So I won't have to do all of it by myself. And so that's going to be a very big help and it'll get you to meet some new podcasters you may not have heard before. I'm going to apologize for my voice. I thought I sounded fine. I have a little bit of a head cold, but now that I'm recording, I can hear it. So I'm assuming you can too. So I do apologize for that. Let's get into this week's case, starting with Christy Lynn Espinosa. Christy was born and raised in Austin, Texas. She had a big and vivacious personality. In school, she was voted class clown, and a former teacher said that there are some students that a teacher just doesn't forget, and Christy was one of those. She loved music and dance and was on the high school dance team. After Christy graduated high school, she did take some time off and she worked as a server at a local restaurant. She was saving some money, enjoying the freedom of being an adult, while she tried to figure out what she wanted to do next. Her plan was to enroll at a local college in the fall of 2009, 
to continue her education and find a career path. In February 2009, Christy was dating a man named Mike Stackable, someone she had actually first met in elementary school. They recently reconnected as adults and just hit it off. They had a great relationship. Michael really encouraged Christy to get back to school and to follow her dreams. On Tuesday, February 24th, 2009, 21-year-old Christy went out with friends to celebrate Mardi Gras. Though not on the scale as somewhere like New Orleans, Austin, Texas does have a vibrant Mardi Gras season, and it's particularly active on the night of Mardi Gras. Mike worked as a bouncer at the Ivy Lounge, so he was working that night. Being Mardi Gras, it was super busy at all the bars and nightclubs. This wasn't a usual Tuesday night. Christy was at the Ivy Club with her best friend Carly, hanging out with Mike whenever he had a break. Around 12.30 a.m., Christy was asked to leave the club because she had too much to drink. Texas has a law called the Dram Shop Act, and a dram shop is just an old-timey way to refer to any business or establishment that serves alcoholic beverages. Under Texas's Dram Shop Act, bars and restaurants cannot knowingly overserve a customer. So if they see someone who they think looks overly intoxicated, they cannot serve them any more alcohol. They don't have to ask them to leave, but most will, especially on a busy night when it's hard to monitor everyone. This law is serious for a bar because if something happens to that person due to being overly intoxicated, they can be held liable. So even having your boyfriend working as the bouncer isn't going to get you around this law. Mike was concerned when Christy was ejected from the bar and even considered walking off the job to keep Christy from being out wandering by herself. But she assured him that she was fine and she and another woman sat out on the patio talking with each other and chatting with whoever came by. After about 45 minutes, Christy told Mike she was going to leave and walk around. She indicated she was going with the woman she had been talking to, someone Mike didn't know, and it appeared she was someone Christy had just met that night. She told Mike they would go to another club nearby. Mike was still a little concerned about being separated from Christy, and the woman offered him her phone number so he could call if he needed to reach Christy at any point. Mike took down the number. Mike assumed Christy would stay in the area because 6th Street, where the Ivy Lounge was, is the area where all the bars and nightclubs are concentrated in Austin. Christy would have no reason to leave the area. Last call in Austin, Texas is 2 a.m., so Mike expected to see or hear from Christy shortly after that. 
When he didn't hear from her by 3 a.m., he called to the number the other woman had given him. The person who answered told him it was the wrong number. So Mike and Christy's friend Carly walked up and down 6th Street looking for her, assuming they would find her standing outside a bar chatting away, but they couldn't find Christy. Mike then went home to wait for her, and while he waited, he called her friends, he called local hospitals to see if he could figure out where she was. In the morning, he finally called her parents, probably calling them last so as to not worry them when this turned out to be nothing. And together, they all decided to wait until 1 p.m. If Christy was out somewhere where she decided to sleep over, she was drinking, so maybe she would sleep in. And by 1 p.m., they would expect to hear from her. And if they didn't, they would then report her missing. While Mike was calling around looking for Christy around 5 a.m., someone called 911 to report what appeared to be a grass fire outside of Austin in a rural area. When the fire department got there, they found that it was not a grass fire at all. It was a body with three-foot flames shooting up. As soon as the scene was secured, homicide detectives arrived. They couldn't identify the woman on site, but they did find a military identification card near the body. The ID card wasn't for someone enlisted in the army, but rather a dependent. The card said Martha Medina Hernandez. But when the body was transported for autopsy, they were able to get some forensic evidence. The reporting is vague on this, but I do have to assume it was probably fingerprints because they very quickly identified the body as not being Martha Medina Hernandez, but rather being 21-year-old Christy Lynn Espinosa. And the reason I say it was probably fingerprints is that Christy did have a minor arrest in her past, and they would have had her fingerprints on file. So they have forensic evidence saying that this is Christy Lynn Espinosa, but they had that identification card at the scene that made them think this was possibly Martha Hernandez. So that card not matching the body meant that Martha went from potential victim to potential witness or even suspect very quickly. The investigators tried to track down Martha, but she didn't answer any of their calls. They then reached out to her husband, Kenneth Hernandez, later on that same day that Christie's body was found. Kenneth told them that he had been out on 6th Street drinking the night before, but not for very long before he went to his sister's house and spent the bulk of the evening there. He said he hadn't seen his wife, Martha, on that night or any other night for about a month. The two were separated and they were in the process of getting a divorce. The detective showed Kenneth a picture of Christy to see if he recognized her, and he said that she did look familiar but that didn't mean he had met her. He mentioned that she actually looked an awful lot like his estranged wife, Martha. That may be why he sort of recognized her. Before ending the interview with Kenneth, the police asked him to contact them if Martha called him or if he saw her. They really needed to talk to her as soon as possible. 
Kenneth assured them that he would. Meanwhile, the autopsy results came in. The Emmy found that Christy was dead at the time her body was set on fire and that an accelerant was used. More testing of Christy's clothing and the soil under her body showed that the accelerant was gasoline. Though the tox screen came back showing alcohol and marijuana along with prescription medications in Christy's system, nothing, not even the alcohol, was at a high enough level to have caused her death. It's not like this was a case of alcohol poisoning or an overdose that caused someone to panic and then try to get rid of her body. There was an injury to the back of Christie's neck, but this injury also wouldn't have been fatal. The cause of death was determined to be suffocation. The investigators still really wanted to find and talk to Martha Hernandez, but they couldn't locate her. Fortunately, her sister-in-law, Rebecca, who was Kenneth's sister, reached out and told them that she knew that Martha had left the United States and was staying with family in Mexico. And she had left shortly after Christie's body was found. Rebecca offered that she and Kenneth go to where Martha was and get her to come back to the United States. Now, the investigators couldn't authorize something like this, getting family to essentially apprehend a suspect in another country. But if Kenneth and Rebecca went down there on their own, and Martha did just so happen to return to the United States with them, Rebecca could call and tip them off as to where Martha was crossing the border. But the entire trip was not sanctioned by law enforcement. They would respond to a tip should that tip come in. Honestly, while Martha was obviously a suspect at this point, they did not have enough to arrest her in Christie's murder. And Really, they weren't entirely sure she was the right person. This all looked suspicious. Her ID was found near the body, and she just so happened to immediately leave the country. But they were missing a lot of information, like how Martha and Christy even linked up if they even knew each other. The investigators knew that Martha had an outstanding warrant in another case. This wasn't something the authorities would go extradite her from Mexico over, but when she re-entered the United States, they would be allowed to immediately take her into custody for this warrant. And the warrant came from a case from July of 2008, the year before, and it stemmed from a domestic violence incident. Kenneth had confronted Martha with accusations she was cheating on him. The fight escalated, and Martha began throwing and smashing things. Then she pulled a knife and threatened to kill Kenneth. He managed to get the knife off of her, and he put it up in a high area where she wouldn't be able to reach it as he tried to de-escalate the situation. And then Martha grabbed a pair of scissors and made the same threats as before. Kenneth ran out of the apartment and called the police from a neighbor's phone. 
Martha was arrested and charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. She bailed out, and a hearing was scheduled for October 2008. And she didn't show up for it. The warrant was then issued for failure to appear. Like I said, this is not enough to extradite her from another country, but it was enough to hold her once she was back in Texas. And on March 6, 2009, Kenneth called the police to tell them that he had made contact with Martha and he too confirmed she was in Mexico. He said he was going down there with his sister Rebecca and when he came back, he would have Martha with him. So we have Kenneth and Rebecca going to Mexico and seemingly to bring back a suspect, but the investigators were a little bit worried. They hadn't entirely ruled Kenneth out from being involved. Remember how the woman Christy was with that night gave a phone number to Mike and it turned out to be the wrong number? Well, the investigators learned it used to be Kenneth's phone number. And Christy told Mike they were going to head over to a place called Fuel, which was somewhere the investigation had led the police already, as somewhere Kenneth and Martha had been that night. So they worried Kenneth may be setting things up to cross the border himself to then disappear. But luckily, that is not what happened. Rebecca kept in touch with the authorities, and the police were waiting at the bridge in Eagle Pass, Texas, to intercept Martha if she returned with Kenneth and Rebecca. And when she did on March 7th, they arrested 26-year-old Martha Medina Hernandez on that outstanding warrant. Martha then agreed to talk with the police, and she gave them multiple contradictory statements on the 7th, the 8th, and the 9th as they questioned her about the murder of Christy Espinosa. In the first interview, Martha admitted that she was in that bar and club area on the night of Mardi Gras, but she denied meeting Christy. She also said she didn't see Kenneth that night and had no idea why some woman would give Christy's boyfriend Kenneth's old phone number. Martha said she was with a group of people but would only name one of them, a friend of hers named Andrew whose name inexplicably changed to Casper at one point and then went back to being Andrew. Martha was asked about her ID card being found near Christie's body, and she said her purse had previously been stolen. She didn't actually have possession of the ID card at the time of the murder. So someone who stole her purse, who also happened to know her husband's old cell phone number, must have been the killer. That's the story she was telling. The investigators told Martha straight up that they had enough to charge her with the murder right then, but she denied knowing anything. So now let's get to the changes in statement number two, which was given the next day. It seems that Martha had considered what the police were telling her about all this evidence against her, and she weighed her options. So this time, Martha decided to come clean, or at least give one possible version of events. 
This time, Martha admitted she was with Kenneth that night, and she admitted that they did meet Christy outside of a bar. She said she previously lied about it because Kenneth told her to. She said that after Christy's body was found and the police tracked down Kenneth, he talked to Martha on the phone and told her they needed to deny being together that night. This call was made after the police explicitly told Kenneth to contact them if he talked to Martha. Phone records would confirm that this call did take place. Martha then walked the investigators through what happened on the night of Christie's death. She said that the three of them all decided to go to another club, but it was full, so the bouncer turned them away at the door. So they went to Kenneth's car to get some cigarettes. They then walked over to a convenience store, and Kenneth bought some orange juice. They used this orange juice as a mixer to go along with some alcohol Kenneth had in his car. The three drove around drinking while Christy sat in the front passenger seat. As they drove around, Martha and Kenneth realized that Christy had passed out. They then realized she wasn't just unconscious, but she was actually dead. Martha said she did not know why Christy died, because it was very sudden, but she thought that perhaps it was either alcohol poisoning or mixing alcohol with other drugs. Kenneth and Martha panicked and decided they needed to get rid of Christie's body. She said they drove to a gas station where Kenneth bought a gas can and some gasoline before they drove out to a rural area. Once there, Kenneth put Christie's body in a field, Kenneth doused it with gasoline, and then Kenneth asked Martha for a cigarette lighter. She handed it to him, and Kenneth lit the body on fire. So yes, Martha was there when Christy died, and yes, she was there when Christy's body was set on fire, but she had no involvement in causing Christy's death, and her only participation in disposing of the body was handing Kenneth a lighter. There were several points in this story that the police could verify. They had security footage from the convenience store showing Kenneth buying three bottles of orange juice at 1.45 a.m. From the cameras outside of the store, they could see him hand something to a person in the front passenger seat. They also saw that person was turned around and appeared to be talking to someone in the back seat. At 3.17 a.m., more CCTV footage showed Kenneth driving through a toll booth between Austin and the spot where the body was found. The toll booth employee was interviewed and actually remembered Kenneth because he was agitated and in a rush. He almost drove off without getting his change. She also said there was a woman in the front seat who appeared to be sleeping and a woman in the back seat who was awake. And then, 10 minutes later, Kenneth was again seen on security footage at a gas station. This shows him buying cigarettes and a gas can. He then went out to the gas pumps and filled up the gas can. He smoked a cigarette and got back into his car. These are the points that back up Martha's story. What doesn't back it up is the cause of death. 
Christy did not overdose. She didn't have a sudden heart attack or die of alcohol poisoning. She was suffocated. But Martha connected herself and Kenneth to Christy's death, and this showed some cracks in their united front of deny, deny, deny. Martha even told the police that Kenneth had said some things after Christie's death that she claimed were untrue, and she was worried he was going to blame her for what happened. In this interview, the investigators got a huge step closer to a confession, so they gave Martha another day behind bars to think things over, and they interviewed her again on March 9th. This time, they confronted Martha with the evidence she was lying, which was the autopsy results, that said Christy was suffocated. At first, Martha tried to stick with the accidental death story, but eventually, she changed it again. In this version of the story, she said that prior to that night, Kenneth had been pressuring her into having a threesome, and that may have been why Kenneth picked Christy up that night and drove around with her. As they were driving around, Martha said Christy got really quiet, and Martha asked if she was okay. Kenneth told Martha that he had given Christy some bars, meaning Xanax, and that Christy had passed out. While she was unconscious, Kenneth started to put his hand up her shirt. Martha said that she told him to stop it. She said that Kenneth then got anxious. He was afraid he was going to get in trouble for giving Christy the Xanax illegally. Not only did he have a career in the army, but he actually worked in healthcare. Rather than let Christy go and tell on him for whatever happened that night, he ordered Martha to put her hand over Christy's mouth and cut off her air supply. Martha said Kenneth was an abusive husband and she was afraid of him, so she tried to do what he said. She said she may have even pulled Christy's head back hard enough to give her the neck injury. But Martha couldn't kill her. She just didn't have it in her. So Kenneth reached over and killed Christy himself by putting his hand over her mouth and nose. Martha said that while Kenneth killed Christy, she put her head down in the back seat and tried to block it out. Then the rest of the night progressed the way she had already said. And according to Martha, everything she did that night was because she was afraid of what Kenneth would do to her if she didn't. Based on Martha's statement and the evidence, Kenneth was arrested the next day and charged alongside with Martha with Christie's murder. And like Martha, Kenneth decided to talk to the police and he had yet another version for them. Like Martha's statement, it came out over more than one interview, but I'm just going to combine his statements into one. We have Martha's final story and now let's hear Kenneth's. Kenneth admitted that he and Martha were together that night when they met Christy. He said that when they left to drive around, Martha was initially in the front seat and Christy was in the back. He said that they stopped at some point and the two changed seats for an unknown reason. Kenneth said that after they switched spots, as he was driving around, 
he saw Martha reach in front of Christy and try to attack her. Startled by this, Kenneth told her to stop what she was doing, and Martha refused. Kenneth said that Martha wrapped her arm around Christy's head and tried to punch her with the other fist. Then she grabbed some plastic cling wrap that they had in the car. According to Kenneth, it was there because Martha had a new tattoo, and she used the saran wrap during the healing process. Martha unwrapped a large amount of the plastic and used it to suffocate Christy from behind. Though Christy was drunk, she was not unconscious, like Martha said, and she started fighting back. So Martha then grabbed the shoulder strap of Christy's seatbelt from the back seat and pulled it back to keep Christy in place until she stopped moving. Kenneth claimed he told Martha to stop repeatedly and asked her what she was doing. Martha told him to shut up and drive, and so that's what Kenneth did. He said he didn't touch Christy at all that night and admitted that even though he didn't kill Christy, he also didn't stop the car to then stop Martha from doing so. After Christy was dead, Kenneth said he bought the gas on Martha's orders. He said he looked at the security camera while at the gas station and mouthed the words, help me. Now, the police did pull the CCTV footage of that purchase to confirm it happened, but they never saw Kenneth look directly at the camera or mouth any words. When he was confronted with that, Kenneth still insisted he did it, but then he couldn't explain why He didn't actually ask the clerk for help. Martha was not in the store with him. She waited in the car. So if Kenneth was doing this against his will, he did little to nothing to get free from Martha, even when he had the opportunity to do so. Kenneth then said he drove out to where they dumped Christie's body. He said it was Martha who pulled Christie's body from the car. It was Martha who poured the gasoline on, and it was Martha who set Christie's body on fire while he waited in the car. Just like Martha tried to do, Kenneth put his hands off any crime. Kenneth said they then drove home, and Martha threw away their clothes, cleaned out the car, and then had it washed and detailed, and then she left for Mexico. The investigators wanted to know why Kenneth lied to them at first if he didn't do anything and it was all Martha. He said he was worried that Martha would hurt their son. So yes, to add to the tragedy here, we do have co-victims here because Kenneth and Martha had children, and particularly the son they shared, who first dealt with his parents' domestic violence and also separation from them when they were both arrested. As for why Martha killed Christy, Kenneth claimed it was jealousy. Kenneth had been dancing with Christy at the club, and Martha thought they were flirting. But he also gave another possible motive. As Kenneth had noted the first time the police spoke with him, Christy looked a lot like Martha. Months before that night, Martha had told Kenneth she was worried about her aggravated assault case and that it would end in her deportation to her native Mexico. 
She had children in the United States, and that separation added to the fear of being deported. She mentioned that if she could find someone who looked enough like her, she would kill the woman and assume her identity. It sounds like this wasn't a comment that was just made in passing, but something that had been repeated, though Kenneth didn't take it entirely seriously. Kenneth told the police that Martha hadn't said that's why she killed Christy, but after he found out she left her military-dependent identification near the body after setting it on fire, he then assumed that might have something to do with it. And it does sound like the police believed Kenneth that Christy was likely killed so Martha could assume her identity. But they absolutely did not believe Kenneth that he was innocent in this. So both Kenneth and Martha were going to face these murder charges. Prior to her trial, Martha tried to get her recorded statements tossed out. She claimed they were involuntary because the police used psychological tactics to coerce her into speaking with them. They mentioned Martha was going to be separated from her children, and according to her, they promised leniency if she cooperated and used threats of what would happen to her if she didn't. But Texas law does allow the police to use psychological tactics like that. And they're even allowed to say that a suspect should be honest if they wanted to have a chance at leniency. That's not the same thing as promising there would be leniency. So the statements were ruled voluntary and admissible under the law. So Martha's statements were in at her trial and Kenneth's were in for his trial. The statements included four versions of what happened. One, Christy died accidentally and they disposed of the body. Two, Martha was jealous and killed Christy. Three, Martha wanted to steal Christy's identity and killed her. And four, Kenneth drugged and assaulted Christy while she was unconscious and then killed her so he wouldn't get into trouble. Martha was going to argue that Kenneth did it and that she was the abused and manipulated spouse. Kenneth was going to argue that Martha did it, and he was the abused and manipulated spouse. The state was going to argue in both of their trials that it doesn't matter which one killed Christy because they were both guilty under something Texas calls the law of parties, which is very similar to what is called felony murder elsewhere. The law states that a person can be criminally responsible for the actions of another in certain circumstances, even if they had no intent to commit the crime themselves. Just being there when the crime is committed is not enough. Otherwise, we could charge bystanders all the time. There are certain things that have to be in place for the law of parties to come into play. We usually see this happen in the case of robberies. An example of this is Jeffrey Lee Wood, In 1996, he waited in the car while his friend went inside a convenience store and attempted to rob it. The friend shot and killed the clerk. After hearing the gunshot, Jeffrey Lee Wood went inside. He removed the surveillance tape, which he later destroyed, and his friend robbed the store. He was convicted and sent to death row for the murder of the clerk based on the law of parties, 
even though he wasn't even in the store when the shot was fired. Another famous Law of Parties case is the Texas Seven. Basically, seven inmates escaped from prison. They committed a robbery that led to the murder of a police officer. Patrick Murphy, one of the seven, was the getaway driver. He was still sent to death row for the murder of the officer, even though, like Jeffrey Lee Wood, he wasn't even in the room when it happened. So Martha and Kenneth could point the finger at each other all they wanted, but they were going to have to come up with a really good reason why they should not be found guilty. And I wasn't the one who did it wouldn't be enough due to the law of parties. They were both there, both driving around with Christy, and they both participated in the cover-up. As a side note, I'm personally curious about any behind-the-scenes talking of plea deals from either side in exchange for testifying. Would they have given Martha the chance to plead on a lesser charge or face a lighter sentence? Would they have offered it to Kenneth? Or did they think their cases against both were strong enough to prove they were both guilty and there was never any consideration of giving a plea deal to anyone? Just from a legal strategy standpoint, I'd be interested in knowing the behind the scenes on that. So if you just so happen to be the prosecutor from this case and just so happen to be listening, let me know. So Martha's trial went first. In their opening statement, the prosecution said that with each statement Martha made, she put herself closer and closer to the murder until she finally admitted she tried to help Kenneth kill Christy. In the end, Martha changed her story so many times that the truth may never be known, but what she confessed to amounted to murder. In the defense opening statement, Martha's attorney assured the jury that they would learn that Kenneth was a controlling man who first tricked Christy into getting into the car with them and then tried to coerce Martha into killing her and ultimately attempted to manipulate Martha into taking the fall so he could save himself. The medical examiner did provide testimony about how Christy died and about the bruise on the back of her neck. The state used this as evidence that Martha did use her hands in the attack on Christy from behind, and it may not have been this half-hearted attempt she tried to portray it as. There is also forensic evidence at the scene that pointed to Martha. There were Mardi Gras beads found near the body with mixed DNA on them. Martha could not be excluded from being a contributor. Add that to the ID found at the scene, and it's putting Martha closer to the body than she claimed when she said it was Kenneth who set the fire. Kenneth's sister, Rebecca, testified for the state, saying that a week after Christie's murder, Kenneth went to the Seton Shoal Creek Hospital because he could not sleep. After he was released, he told Rebecca that he had a plan to go get Martha from Mexico and bring her back to Texas to face the consequences of what she did. Rebecca said that they were in a hotel in Mexico on the way back to Texas. They weren't too far from the border when Martha confessed to her. She said Kenneth was in the shower at the time, so he did not hear what Martha said. Rebecca testified that she asked Martha straight out what happened the night Christy died and Martha got quiet. Rebecca asked her 
What did you do? Martha replied that she had plastic in the car and she put it over Christie's mouth. The prosecutor then asked about a motive and Rebecca did not have an answer for this. However, she had previously told the police that the motive was to steal Christie's identity. When she was shown that statement and asked what Martha had said about the identification, Rebecca said that Martha did admit to her that she put it there so the police would think the body was hers. She was trying to get the police to stop looking for her for that outstanding warrant. On cross-examination, the defense took shots at Rebecca's credibility due to a previous theft conviction. He also pointed out that Rebecca gave conflicting statements and didn't bring up the confession in the hotel room until weeks after Martha's arrest. In fact, she didn't mention it until after her brother was arrested and charged. It sounded like she was trying to protect him. Martha's recorded interviews, however, were really the smoking gun bombshell evidence for the jury. It's really difficult for her to back out of what she admitted to and to the fact that she lied repeatedly to the police. The defense focused on the abused partner defense, saying that Martha was scared of what would happen if she didn't do what Kenneth ordered her to do. They called an expert in intimate partner violence to the stand who testified about research into people complying with authority, even when it meant going against their own values. He testified that Martha complied with a person who usually ordered her around, and that person was Kenneth. But the jury wasn't so sure about that and certainly didn't think it negated Martha's culpability. The jury deliberated for about three hours before they found Martha guilty of murder. At the sentencing hearing, Martha's brother testified about her upbringing and things that could be seen as mitigating circumstances, like their father dying when they were young and about Martha being sexually assaulted as a teenager. The defense also pointed out that Martha had young children she hoped to eventually be free to see and asked for a fair sentence. Whether the mitigating factor swayed the jury or they did believe that Martha was to some degree coerced, I don't know, but they came back with a 60-year sentence and Martha will be eligible for parole after 30. She could be out of prison in her mid-50s, even though the jury did have the option of sending her away for life. And then we move on to trial number two, Kenneth Hernandez. Kenneth pleaded guilty to a tampering with evidence charge for burning Christie's body. So that was not going to be a charge going into trial. They were just focused on the murder case. There is nothing to prevent a prosecutor from presenting two different theories of the crime to two different juries. They could have argued that they believed Martha killed Christie in her trial and turned around and argued that Kenneth killed her in his. Both of these theories are consistent with the evidence, but the prosecution did not do this. They instead argued that Kenneth assisted Martha in killing Christie. Even if all you have is Kenneth's statement about what happened, he said he was in the driver's seat, Martha was in the back seat, and Christy was right next to him in the passenger seat. 
He said there was a struggle where Christy tried to fight Martha off, yet he kept driving when he, the biggest and strongest person in that car, could have stopped the car and stopped the attack based not just on his size, but his proximity to Christy. So not only did he sit feet away from Christy as she was killed and did nothing, he then bought the gas at the station. He was away from Martha, and in spite of what he claimed about mouthing, help me, to the cameras, there was no evidence he tried to change the course of the night. He then drove to where they lit the body on fire. After that, Kenneth didn't call the police when he was again away from Martha. And when he was interviewed by the police, he still didn't turn her in. He lied about it and then called Martha to let her know the police were coming around asking questions, which gave her a heads up and the chance to run. It made more sense that Kenneth didn't do anything in the situation and in fact helped Martha because he was in on it. And even if we do accept Kenneth's statement as 100% true, what happened? His actions and inactions aided Martha, and that meant he was just as guilty as if he killed Christy himself. His defense was basically that what Kenneth did or did not do did not add up to murder. Yes, he was a coward who was manipulated by his abusive wife, but he wasn't a killer. The state in this trial called a jailhouse informant named Damon to the stand. I have mentioned before that I'm not a fan of incentivized witnesses, but there is an important thing with Damon's story. He had a specific detail that had not been made public, and that lends some credibility to his story. Damon shared a cell with Kenneth at the county jail, and he testified Kenneth told him that he and Martha killed Christy so Martha could take over her identity. The answer to which one of them killed Christy was that they both did it. Damon said he was told Martha started the attack by trying to strangle Christy, but Christy was fighting her off. Kenneth tried to hold her down, but he was also driving, so he couldn't be of much assistance. According to Damon, Kenneth was the one who told Martha to get the saran wrap and use it. Afterwards, Kenneth told Damon that he pulled his car to the side of the gas station convenience store to avoid the car being seen on security cameras by the gas pumps. And that is the part of the story that was never in the media. It never mentioned where Kenneth parked. Damon also said that Kenneth told him he was the one who poured the gasoline on Christie's body and Martha was the one who set it on fire. So this was not a who did it, it was they both did it. Kenneth then said he started cleaning up, which was the opposite of what he told the police when he said it was Martha who did the cleanup. Damon testified that Kenneth cursed about Martha and blamed her for getting them caught. He thought she should have taken the fall for both of them. And the jury took very little time in finding Kenneth guilty of murder, and then they gave him a life sentence. I couldn't help but think about the two juries finding both of them guilty of the same crime. One jury gave a sentence of 60 years, and the other, a life sentence. Their defenses were the exact same. They were coerced into participation 
by an abusive spouse. So was there a mitigating factor in Martha's case that led them to mercy, or is this a gender issue? Did the jury have a harder time finding a man the victim of coercive control rather than a woman? But then I looked both of them up on the Texas inmate search, which tells me their earliest parole dates. They're the same. Kenneth also has parole eligibility at 30 years. And if Martha has to serve her entire sentence, she will be nearly 90 when released, making it effectively a life sentence. So while disparity in sentencing seems like the type of rabbit hole I would go down, these sentences turned out to be more or less two different ways to say the same thing. Unless more information is released one day about the thinking behind saying 60 years versus a life sentence, but giving them the same non-parole period, we really can't say very much about what these sentences say about how the jury perceived the two killers. After the trials were over, Christy Espinosa's family praised both juries. At the courthouse, her father said the jurors, quote, ultimately gave Christy her voice and allowed for justice to happen here. This will forever be a place that will be in our hearts. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.